Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to bonus episode number two. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing two classic horror stories for you about terrifying tunes and wishes gone wrong. Both of them plumbed from the depths of my extensive audio archive. I sincerely hope you enjoy them and that you'll join me each and every Wednesday for more terrifying tales from my creep-filled crypt. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy even more tales from my archives, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up as a patron today at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. There you'll get access to my audio archives dating back to 2012, including one-off stories and extended episodes of my podcast, all of them ad-free. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and 
Settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author W. W. Jacobs, an English author of short stories and novels that passed away September 1, 1943, just days before his 80th birthday. During his writing career, Jacobs was perhaps best known for his farcical comedies. However, one of his most memorable pieces has a decidedly sinister bent to it. In it, a family's fate is changed one evening when an old friend comes to visit with an odd souvenir from his travels in his possession, an artifact that allegedly grants its owner anything their heart desired, but at what cost? Without further ado, from horror fiction legend W. W. Jacobs, I present to you The Monkey's Paw. Part 1 Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess, the former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical changes, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind, said Mr. White who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. "'I'm listening,' said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. "'Check.' "'I should hardly think that he'd come to-night,' said his father, with his hand poised over the board. "'Mate,' replied the son. "'That's the worst thing of living out so far,' bawled Mr. White." with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Pathways a bog, and the roads a torn. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses on the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time, to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he had a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. "'There he is,' said Herbert White, as the gate banged too loudly and heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mr. White said, "'Tut, tut!' and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. "'Sergeant Major Harris,' he said, introducing him. The Sergeant Major shook hands, and, taking the preferred seat by the fire, watched contentedly while his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter, and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of strange scenes and doughty deeds, of wars and plagues and strange places. Twenty-one years of it! said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. 
When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. You don't look to have taken much harm, said Miss White, politely. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man, just to look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakers and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you'd call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and set it down again. His host filled it for him. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket, it's just an ordinary little paw dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. "'And what is there special about it?' inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son and, having examined it, placed it upon the table. "'It had a spell put on it by an old fakir,' said the sergeant major, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow.' He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manner was so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter jarred somewhat. "'Well, why don't you have three, sir?' said Herbert White, cleverly. The soldier regarded him in a way that middle age is wont to regard presumptuous youth. "'I have,' he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. "'And did you really have the three wishes granted?' asked Mrs. White. "'I did,' said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. "'And has anybody else wished?' inquired the old lady. "'The first man had his three wishes, yes,' was the reply. "'I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death, and that's how I got the paw.' His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. "'If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now, then, Morris,' said the old man at last. "'What do you keep it for?' The soldier shook his head. "'Fancy, I suppose,' he said slowly. "'If you could have another three wishes,' said the old man, eyeing him keenly, "'would you have them?' "'I don't know,' said the other. "'I don't know.' He took the paw and, dangling it between his front finger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. "'Better let it burn,' said the soldier solemnly. "'If you don't want it, Morris,' said the old man, "'give it to me.' "'I won't,' said his friend doggedly. "'I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens.' Pitch it on the fire again like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his new possession closely. What do you do to it? he inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. 
but I warn you of the consequences. Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White, as she rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket. Then all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back into his pocket and, placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldiers' adventures in India. If the tale about the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he has been telling us, said Abert, as the door closed behind their guest, just in time for him to catch the last train, we shan't make much out of it. Did you give him anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White regarding her husband closely. A trifle, he said, coloring slightly. But he didn't want it, but I made him take it. And he pressed me again to throw it away. Likely, said Hebert with pretended horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with. Then you can't be henpecked. He darted round the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an antimacassar. Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact, he said slowly. It seems to me I've got all I want. If you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you, said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son, with a solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down at the piano and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted the words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished it, twisted in my hands like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son as he picked it up and placed it on the table, and I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though. There's no harm done. But it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence, unusual and depressing, settled upon all three which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the night. "'I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed,' said Herbert, as he bade them good night, and something horrible squatting up at the top of the wardrobe, watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last face was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. 
It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. Part 2 In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, Herbert laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room, which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. "'I suppose all old soldiers are the same,' said Mrs. White. "'The idea of our listening to such nonsense. "'How could wishes be granted in these days? "'And if they could, how could two hundred pounds hurt your father?' "'Might drop in his head from the sky,' said the frivolous Herbert. "'Morris said the things happened so naturally,' said his father, "'that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence.' "'Well, don't break into the money before I come back,' said Herbert, as he rose from the table. "'I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you.' His mother laughed, and following him to the door, watched him down the road, and returning to the breakfast table was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant-majors of bibulous habits when she found out that the post brought a tailor's bill. "'Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home,' she said, as they sat at dinner. "'I dare say,' said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. "'But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to.' "'You thought it did?' said the old lady, soothingly. I say it did, replied the other. There was no thought about it. I had just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the two hundred pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times... He paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it, and then, with sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White, at the same moment, placed her hands behind her, and hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively, and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited, as patiently as her sex would permit, for him to broach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. "'I was asked to call,' he said at last, and stooped and picked up a piece of cotton from his trousers." "'I come from Ma and Megan's.' "'The old lady started. "'Is anything the matter?' she asked breathlessly. "'Has anything happened to Herbert? "'What is it? What is it?' "'Her husband interposed. "'There, there, mother,' he said hastily. "'Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. "'You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir,' "'and he eyed the other wistfully. 
I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? demanded the mother. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly, but he is not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the old woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that, thank... She broke off suddenly as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned upon her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. She caught her breath, and turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling old hand upon his. There was a long silence. "'It was caught in the machinery,' said the visitor at length, in a low voice. "'Caught in the machinery?' repeated Mr. White, in a dazed fashion. "'Yes.' He sat, staring blankly out at the window, and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it, as he had been wont to do in their old courting days, nearly forty years ago. "'There was only one left to us,' he said, turning gently to the visitor." It is hard. The other coughed and, rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wished me to convey their sincere sympathy with you and your great loss, he said, without looking round. I beg that you will understand I am only their servant in merely obeying orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On a husband's face was a look such as his friend, the sergeant, might have carried into his first action. I was to say that Ma and Megan's disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand and, rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds, was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. Part 3 In the huge new cemetery some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to a house steeped in shadow and silence. It was all over so quickly that, at first, they could hardly realize it, and remained in a state of expectation as though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed, and the expectation gave place to resignation, the hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled, apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. It will be cold. It's colder for my son, said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sounds of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The paw, she cried wildly, the monkey's paw. He started up in alarm. 
Where? Where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it. It's in the parlor on the bracket, he replied, marveling. Why? She cried and laughed together and bending over kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? he questioned. The other two wishes, she replied rapidly. We've only had one. Was that not enough? he demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly, and wish our boy alive again. The man sat up in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, you're mad, he cried aghast. Get it, she panted. Get it quickly and wish. Oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman fervishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go and get it and wish, cried the old woman, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days, and besides, he... I would not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, dragged him toward the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, and a horrible fear that had the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape the room seized upon him, and he caught his breath as he found that he had not lost the direction to the door. His brow was cold with sweat, he felt his way around the table, and groped all along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish, she cried in a strong voice. It is foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish, repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank trembling into a chair as the old woman, with burning eyes, walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat, until he was chilled by the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burnt below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls until, a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and a minute or two afterward the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but both lay silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time screwing up his courage, the husband took the box of matches, and striking one went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs, the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at the same moment a knock, so quiet and stealthy, 
as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hands. He stood motionless, his breath suspended, until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. "'What's that?' cried the old woman, starting up. "'A rat,' said the old man in a shaking tone. "'A rat. It, it passed me on the stairs.' His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. "'It's Herbert!' she screamed. "'It's Herbert!' She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. "'What are you going to do?' he whispered hoarsely. "'It's my boy! It's Herbert!' she cried, struggling mechanically. "'I forgot it was two miles away. What are you holding me for? Let go! I must open the door!' "'For God's sakes, don't let him in!' cried the old man, trembling. "'You're afraid of your own son?' she cried, struggling. "'Let me go. I'm coming. Herbert, I'm coming!' There was another knock, and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called for her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bottom bolt draw slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice, strained and panting. "'The bolt!' she cried lightly. "'Come down! I can't reach it!' But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If he could only find it before the thing outside got in. Perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it slowly came back. And at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back and the door open. A cold wind rushed up the staircase, and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp, flickering opposite, shone on a quiet and deserted road. I hope you enjoyed the classic horror tale, The Monkey's Paw, by author W.W. Jacobs, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got one final round of frightening fiction for you. Our next terrifying tale comes to us from an author who truly requires no introduction, H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft, one of the world's most well-known horror fiction authors, passed away March 15, 1937, at the age of 46, after a battle with cancer. Before his death, he contributed a great deal of content to the pulp fiction communities in the genres of science fiction and horror, and pioneered a genre now known as cosmic horror. In our story today, one of his relatively lesser-known works, we meet a university student who is forced, by his lack of funds, to take the only lodging he can afford, an apartment in a nearly empty building in a strange part of the city. While living there, he meets a strange older man who, in spite of 
hearing disabilities has a penchant for playing the cello late at night. When our student gains the old man's trust, he discovers there is more to the music than anyone could suspect, and that his playing it may very well be a matter of life and death. Without further ado from the classic horror author H.P. Lovecraft, I present to you the music of Eric Zahn. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I have examined the maps of the city with the greatest care, yet have never again found the Rue d'Ose. These maps have not been modern maps alone, for I know that names change. I have, on the contrary, delved deeply into all the antiquities of the place, and have personally explored every region of whatever name, which could possibly answer to the street I knew as Rue d'Ozay. But despite all I have done, it remains an humiliating fact that I cannot find the house, the street, or even the locality where during the last months of my impoverished life as a student of metaphysics at the university, I heard the music of Erich Zahn. That my memory is broken, I do not wonder, for my health, physical and mental, was gravely disturbed throughout the period of my residence in the Rue d'Ose, and I recall that I took none of my few acquaintances there. But that I cannot find the place again is both singular and perplexing, for it was within a half-hour's walk of the university, and was distinguished by peculiarities which could hardly be forgotten by anyone who had been there. I have never met a person who has seen the Rue d'Ozay. The Rue d'Ozay lays across a dark river bordered by precipitous brick, blear-windowed warehouses and spanned by a ponderous bridge of dark stone. It was always shadowy along that river, as if the smoke of neighboring factories shut out the sun perpetually. The river was also odorous with evil stenches, which I have never smelled elsewhere, and which may some day help me find it, since I should recognize them at once. Beyond the bridge were narrow cobbled street with rails, and then came the ascent, at first gradual, but incredibly steep as the Rue d'Ossay was reached. I have never seen another street as narrow and steep as the Rue d'Ossay. It was almost a cliff closed to all vehicles, consisting in several places of flights of steps 
and ending at the top in a lofty ivy wall. Its paving was irregular, sometimes stone slabs, sometimes cobblestones, and sometimes bare earth with struggling greenish-gray vegetation. The houses were tall, peak roof, incredibly old, and crazily leaning backward, forward, and sideways. Occasionally, an opposite pair, both leaning forward, almost met across the street like an arch, and certainly they kept most of the light from the ground below. There were a few overhead bridges from house to house across the street. The inhabitants of that street impressed me peculiarly. At first I thought it was because they were all silent and reticent, but later decided it was because they were all very old. I did not know how I came to live on such a street, but I was not myself when I moved there. I had been living in many poor places, always evicted for want of money, until at last I came upon that tottering house in the Rue d'Ose, kept by the paralytic Blando. It was the third house from the top of the street and by far the tallest of them all. My room was on the fifth story, the only inhabited room there, since the house was almost empty. On the night I arrived, I heard strange music from the peaked garret overhead, and the next day asked old Blando about it. He told me it was an old German viol player, a strange dumb man who signed his name as Erkzan, and who played evenings in a cheap theater orchestra. Adding that Zahn's desire to play in the night after his return from the theater was the reason he had chosen this lofty and isolated garret room, whose single gable window was the only point on the street from which one could look over the terminating wall at the declivity and panorama beyond. Thereafter I heard Zahn every night, and although he kept me awake, I was haunted by the weirdness of his music. Knowing little of the art myself, I was yet certain that none of his harmonies had any relation to music I had heard before, and concluded that he was a composer of highly original genius. The longer I listened, the more I was fascinated, until, after a week, I resolved to make the old man's acquaintance. One night, as he was returning from his work, I intercepted Zahn in the hallway and told him that I would like to know him and be with him when he played. He was a small, lean, bent person, with shabby clothes, blue eyes, grotesque, satyr-like face, and nearly bald head, and at my first words seemed both angered and frightened. My obvious friendliness, however, finally melted him, and he grudgingly motioned to me to follow him up the dark, creaking, and rickety attic stairs. His room, one of only two in the steeply pitched garret, was on the west side, toward the high wall that formed the upper end of the street. Its size was very great and seemed the greater because of its extraordinary barrenness and neglect. Of furniture, there was only a narrow iron bedstead, a dingy washstand, a small table, a large bookcase, an iron music rack, and three old-fashioned chairs. Sheets of music were piled in disorder about the floor, 
The walls were of bare boards and had probably never known plaster, whilst the abundance of dust and cobwebs made the place seem more deserted than inhabited. Evidently, Attic Zahn's world of beauty lay in some far cosmos of the imagination. Motioning me to sit down, the dumb man closed the door, turned the large wooden bolt, and lighted a candle to augment the one he had brought with him. He now removed his viol from its moth-eaten covering, and taking it, seated himself in the least uncomfortable of the chairs. He did not employ the music rack, but offering no choice, and playing from memory, enchanted me for over an hour with strains I had never heard before. Strains which must have been of his own devising. To describe their exact nature is impossible for one unversed in music. They were a kind of fugue with recurrent passages of the most captivating quality, but to me were notable for the absence of any of the weird notes I had overheard from my room below on other occasions. Those haunting notes I had remembered, and had often hummed and whistled inaccurately to myself. So, when the player at length laid down his bow, I asked him if he would render some of them. As I began my request, the wrinkled, satyr-like face lost the bored placidity it had possessed during the playing and seemed to show the same curious mixture of anger and fright which I had noticed when first I accosted the old man. For a moment I was inclined to use persuasion, regarding rather lightly the whims of senility, and even tried to awaken my host's weirder mood by whistling a few of the strains to which I had listened the night before. But I did not pursue this course for more than a moment, for when the dumb musician recognized the whistled air, his face grew suddenly distorted with an expression wholly beyond analysis, and his long, cold, bony right hand reached out to stop my mouth and silence the crude imitation. As he did this, he further demonstrated his eccentricity by casting a startled glance toward the lone curtained window, as if fearful of some intruder a glance doubly absurd since the garret stood high and inaccessible above all the adjacent roofs, this window being the only point on the steep street, as the concierge had told me, from which one could see over the wall at the summit. The old man's glance brought Blando's remark to my mind, and with a certain capriciousness I felt a wish to look out over the wide and dizzying panorama of moonlit roofs and city lights beyond the hilltop, which, of all the dwellers in the Rue d'Ozay, only this crabbed musician could see. I moved toward the window, and would have drawn aside the nondescript curtains, when, with a frightened rage even greater than before, the dumb lodger was upon me again. This time, motioning with his head toward the door, as he nervously strove to drag me thither with both hands. Now thoroughly disgusted with my host, I ordered him to release me and told him I would go at once. His clutch relaxed, and as he saw my disgust and offense, his own anger seemed to subside. He tightened his relaxing grip, this time in a friendly manner, forcing me into a chair 
then with an appearance of wistfulness crossing to the littered table, where he wrote many words with a pencil in the labored French of a foreigner. The note which he finally handed me was an appeal for tolerance and forgiveness. Zahn said that he was old, lonely, and afflicted with strange fears and nervous disorders connected with his music and with other things. He had enjoyed my listening to his music and wished I would come again and not mind his eccentricities. But he could not play to another his weird harmonies and could not bear hearing them from another, nor could he bear having anything in his room touched by another. He had not known until our hallway conversation that I could overhear his playing in my room and now asked me if I would arrange with Blando to take a lower room where I could not hear him in the night. He would, he wrote, defray the difference in rent. As I sat deciphering the execrable French, I felt more lenient toward the old man. He was a victim of physical and nervous suffering, as was I, and my metaphysical studies had taught me kindness. In the silence there came a slight sound from the window. The shutter must have rattled in the night wind, and for some reason I started almost as violently as did Eric Zahn. So when I had finished reading, I shook my host by the hand and departed as a friend. The next day, Blando gave me a more expensive room on the third floor, between the apartments of an aged moneylender and the room of a respectable upholsterer. There was no one on the fourth floor. It was not long before I found that Zahn's eagerness for my company was not as great as it had seemed while he was persuading me to move down from the fifth story. He did not ask me to call on him, and when I did call, he appeared uneasy and played listlessly. This was always at night. In the day, he slept and would admit no one. My liking for him did not grow, though the attic room and the weird music seemed to hold an odd fascination for me. I had a curious desire to look out that window, over the wall and down the unseen slope of the glittering roofs and spires, which must lie outspread there. Once I went up to the garret during theater hours, when Zahn was away, but the door was locked. What I did succeed in doing was to overhear the nocturnal playing of the dumb old man. At first, I would tiptoe up to my old fifth floor. Then I grew bold enough to climb the last creaking staircase to the peaked garret. There, in the narrow hall, outside the bolted door with a covered keyhole, I often heard sounds which filled me with an indefinable dread, the dread of vague wonder and brooding mystery. It was not that the sounds were hideous, for they were not, but that they held vibrations suggesting nothing on this globe of earth and that, at certain intervals, they assumed a symphonic quality, which I could hardly conceive as produced by one player. Certainly, Eric Zahn was a genius of wild power. As the weeks passed, the playing grew wilder, whilst the old musician acquired an increasing haggardness and furtiveness pitiful to behold. He now refused to admit me at any time and shunned me whenever we met on the stairs. Then, one night, as I listened at the door, 
I heard the shrieking viol swell with a chaotic babble of sound, a pandemonium which would have led me to doubt my own shaking sanity. Had there not come from behind that barred portal a piteous proof that the horror was real, the awful, inarticulate cry which only a mute can utter, and which rises only in moments of the most terrible fear or anguish. I knocked repeatedly at the door, but received no response. Afterward, I waited in the black hallway, shivering with cold and fear, till I heard the poor musician's feeble effort to rise from the floor by the aid of a chair. But leaving him just conscious after a fainting fit, I renewed my rapping, at the same time calling out my name reassuringly. I heard Zahn stumble to the window and close both shutter and sash, then stumbled to the floor, which he falteringly unfastened to admit me. This time, his delight at having me present was real, for his distorted face gleamed with relief when he clutched at my coat as a child clutches at its mother's skirts. Shaking pathetically, the old man forced me into a chair whilst he sank into another, beside which his viol and boil lay carelessly on the floor. He sat for some time, inactive, nodding oddly, but having a paradoxical suggestion of intense and frightened listening. Subsequently, he seemed to be satisfied, and crossing to a chair by the table, wrote a brief note, handed it to me, and returned to the table, where he began to write rapidly and incessantly. The note implored me, in the name of mercy, and for the sake of my own curiosity, to wait where I was while he prepared a full account in German of all the marvels and terrors which beset him. I waited, and the dumb man's pencil flew. It was perhaps an hour later, while I still waited and while the old musician's feverishly written sheets still continued to pile up that I saw Zahn start as from the hint of a horrible shock. Unmistakably, he was looking at the curtained window and listening shudderingly. Then I half fancied I heard a sound myself, though it was not a horrible sound, but rather an exquisitely low and infinitely distant musical note, suggesting a player in one of the neighboring houses or in some abode above the lofty wall over which I had never been able to look. Upon Zahn, the effect was terrible, for dropping his pencil, suddenly he rose, seized his viol, and commenced to rend the night with the wildest playing I had ever heard from his bow, save when listening at the barred door. It would be useless to describe the playing of Eric Zahn on that dreadful night, it was more horrible than anything I had ever overheard, because I could now see the expression of his face, and could realize that this time the motive was stark fear. He was trying to make a noise, to ward something off or drown something out. What I could not imagine, awesome though I felt it must be. The playing grew fantastic, delirious, and hysterical, yet kept to the last the qualities of supreme genius which I knew this strange old man possessed. I recognized the air. It was the wild Hungarian dance, 
popular in the theaters. And I reflected for a moment that this was the first time I had ever heard Zahn play the work of another composer. Louder and louder, wilder and wilder, mounted the shrieking and whining of that desperate viol. The player was dripping with an uncanny perspiration and twisted like a monkey, always looking frantically at the curtained window. In his frenzied strains I could almost see shadowy satyrs and bacchanals dancing and whirling insanely through seething abysses of clouds and smoke and lightning. And then I thought I heard a shriller, steadier note that was not from the viol, a calm, deliberate, purposeful, mocking note from far away in the west. At this juncture, the shutter began to rattle in a howling night wind, which had sprung up outside as if in answer to the mad playing within. Zahn's screaming viol now outdid itself, emitting sounds I had never thought of viol could emit. The shutter rattled more loudly, unfastened, and commenced slamming against the window. Then the glass broke shiveringly under the persistent impacts, and the chill wind rushed in, making the candles sputter and rustling the sheets of paper on the table where Zahn had begun to write out his horrible secret. I looked at Zahn and saw that he was past conscious observation. His blue eyes were bulging, glassy, and sightless, and the frantic playing had become a blind, mechanical, unrecognizable orgy that no pen could even suggest. A sudden gust, stronger than the others, caught up the manuscript and bore it toward the window. I followed the flying sheets in desperation, but they were gone before I reached the demolished panes. Then I remembered my old wish to gaze from this window, the only window in the Rue d'Ose, from which one might see the slope beyond the wall and the city outspread beneath. It was very dark, but the city's lights always burned, and I expected to see them there amidst the rain and wind. Yet, when I looked from that highest of all gable windows, looked while the candle sputtered and the insane viol howled with the night wind, I saw no city spread below, and no friendly lights gleaming from remembered streets, but only the blackness of space, illimitable. Unimagined space alive with motion and music, and having no semblance to anything on earth. And as I stood there looking in terror, the wind blew out the candles in that ancient peak garret, leaving me in savage and impenetrable darkness with chaos and pandemonium before me, and the demon madness of that night-baying viol behind me. I staggered back in the dark without the means of striking a light, crashing against the table, overturning a chair, and finally groping my way to the place where the blackness screamed with shocking music. To save myself and Erich Zahn, I could at least try whatever the powers opposed to me, once I thought some chill thing brushed me and I screamed, but my scream could not be heard above that hideous viol. Suddenly, out of the blackness, the madly sawing bow struck me, and I knew I was close to the player. I felt a head, touched the back of Zahn's chair, and then found and shook his shoulder in an effort to bring him to his senses. He did not respond. 
and still the viol shrieked on without slackening. I moved my hand to his head, whose mechanical nodding I was able to stop, and shouted in his ear that we must both flee from the unknown things of the night. But he neither answered me nor abated the frenzy of his unutterable music, while all through the garret strange currents of wind seemed to dance in the darkness and babble. When my hand touched his ear, I shuddered, though I knew not why, knew not why till I felt the still face, the ice-cold, stiffened, unbreathing face, whose glassy eyes bulged uselessly into the void. And then, by some miracle, finding the door in the large wooden bolt, I plunged wildly away from that glassy-eyed thing in the dark, and from the ghoulish howling of that accursed viol, whose fury increased even as I plunged. Leaping, floating, flying down those endless stairs through the dark house, racing mindlessly out into the narrow, steep, and ancient street of steps and tottering houses, clattering down steps and over cobbles to the lower streets and the putrid canyon-walled river, panting across the great dark bridge to the broader, healthier streets and boulevards we know. All these are terrible impressions that linger with me. And I recall that there was no wind and that the moon was out, and that all the lights in the city twinkled. Despite my most careful searches and investigations, I have never since been able to find the Rue d'Ose. But I am not wholly sorry, either for this or for the loss in undreamable abysses, of the closely written sheets which alone could have explained the music of Eric Zahn. I hope you enjoyed the music of Eric Zahn by horror legend H.P. Lovecraft, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this bonus episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, part of a new series in which I share a handful of the creepy tales from my extensive audio archive with you each and every Wednesday. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and it would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear more content from my archive, as well as premium extended editions of my regular episodes, featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today, and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube... You can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. 
And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next time, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs>Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that 
and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.